and then we'll jump right into God's Word. <coughs> Father God, we thank you for your Word, that we get the chance to engage with it again today. Uh, we ask that you open it to our hearts and open our hearts to what you have to say to us in it. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So this week we're continuing our series on the commands of Jesus, on what Jesus demands of the world. And in particular, we're looking at Jesus' commands around the realms of trust and anxiety. Anxiety and trust are sort of two sides of that one coin. And the passage that we just heard, that Matthew 6, 25 to 34, is probably Jesus' Jesus's most direct command on the issue. Don't be anxious. Good advice. Feeling hungry? Try feeling nourished. Much better than feeling hungry. Frustrated by traffic? Hmm, try sprouting an Inspector Gadget-style rotor from your head and helicoptering to work. You'll find it's much quicker. Feeling nervous? Just don't, mate. You'll feel heaps better. At first glance, Jesus' command here seems to be in that category of impossible recommendations. Just don't worry about tomorrow. In uh, January 2014, three years ago, this is the, the first passage of Scripture I preached, but there is always more to learn, and I've discovered that as I've engaged with it again this week. You cannot get to the bottom of the well that is God's Word. So let's first take some time to look at what we mean by trust and anxiety, really try and interrogate those terms. Because one really is the mirror of the other. Trust is our measure of assurance that something is what it appears to be. And anxiety is our lack of assurance that that thing is what it appears to be. So you're hiking up a mountain. You've got a friend with you. You come to a rickety rope bridge over a deep gorge. It certainly appears to be a way to get across. It certainly looks that way, but it might actually be a death trap. It might be a way to fall into a huge hole. It might be something that snaps underneath your feet and drops you down or swings you into the, into the cliff face. It might rock back and forth and make you jump back off it. It could be any number of things, that bridge. So you can treat the bridge as trustworthy, or you can yield to your anxiety, which is the part of you that is at that time imagining falling to your death, and then go and do something else. You might not think it's worth the risk. You could turn to your friend and say, hey man, if I go out there, like, the best thing I can get is a nice picture from the top of this mountain lookout. The worst thing I can get is dead. I am not rolling those dice. This is not a good game. Now, your friend might say, no, it's fine. I come up here all the time with my family. We cross this bridge all the time. Well, that changes things. Because you might trust him, even if you don't trust the bridge. Your friend appears to be an authority on crossing this rope bridge, and you've known them for 10 years, and they'll go first. That takes away all the anxiety, makes it possible to do. And once you're out there and it's swinging a little bit, it's not that bad, all what remains of that hesitation goes away, and you can trust that bridge from then on. Anxiety is uncertainty about something that is going to impact our future. The bridge might lead up the mountain, might dump you into a valley full of rocks. We don't know. But if you have reason to trust it, then you can suspend your fear and you can lean on the likely possibility that you'll get across just fine and ignore those unlikely ones that you'll suffer for doing so. It's fear of the unknown. And there's a lot that we don't know 
about our futures. That's why there's a whole category of nightmares that we call anxiety dreams. Most people have had them and continue to have them through their lives. Not quite a nightmare. A nightmare is usually pretty garish and directly scary. You're being chased by a, you know, a crazy monster or something. Anxiety dreams tend to be about embarrassment, being caught off guard, being humiliated, being shamed, not knowing how to act to fix a problem. So have you ever had one of these? Do they sound familiar? Have you dreamed of sleeping through your alarm and missing your job interview or exam? And then usually waking up panicked an hour before your alarm would go off. Have you dreamed that you're sitting on the road for some reason, there's a, car's coming, there's a car coming, but your legs are stupid for no good reason, and you can't get out of the way? Dreamed that you're in a public place, and for some reason it turns out you've lost your pants. <laughs> this is the anxious part of your brain twitching away while you sleep, trying to work out its problems. I'll confide in you, I'll tell you about an anxiety dream I had uh, about two years ago. I dreamt that I was in the starting side for the Maroons in a State of Origin game. And not mythical sports superstar Brendan who doesn't exist, this guy. Um, it, it was terrifying. <laughs> um, to be part of one of the most televised and culturally sacred events in the Australian calendar, and I didn't know why I was there. I'm standing there during the national anthem, paralyzed, thinking, did I win a competition and forget about it? <laughs> Has there been some kind of mix-up? Why am I here? I'm unfit. You know, I, uh, I can't spiral a pass. I don't understand what offside is. <laughs> I don't know what position I'm meant to be playing, and if I did, I wouldn't know what that meant. These are all valid objections, but here I was. It's the worst day of my life in my dream world, and everyone pats each other on the back and runs to the appropriate positions in the field. I turn to Darren Lockie, who's coming out of retirement for some reason. <laughs> I say, Darren, I'm not supposed to be here, and he ruffles my hands, just do your best, Cobra, it's a team effort. Runs off. <laughs> so the game starts, I'm trying to figure out how am I gonna get out of here. If I get the ball, I can get tackled, I can break my collarbone, and then I can leave in the most honorable way possible. But that would mean I would have to catch the ball when it's thrown at me. And that's not going to happen. So I'm running back and forth at the end of the line, trying to look like an unappealing like, partner to pass the ball to, going, don't pass to me, I don't know how to play. And that was awful. I don't quite know what triggered that specifically. I probably had a lot of assessment due for college at the time and State of, Origin, State of Origin just happened to be on TV um, during that time period. And the brain just sort of smushes that kind of thing together into one horrible fantasy. But in this case, the root of that dream is a fear of being called to do something I felt horribly unqualified to do, I guess. I'd be caught off guard and not able to support what people expected of me. That people would discover that I'm not the competent adult that I am pretending to be, and I'm actually terrible at everything. So what does Christ mean then when he says, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body or what you will wear? Because what it can't mean is, hey, you first world Christians for whom food and clothing and water are trivial expenses, don't worry about those, they'll take care of themselves. We got that. You know, those, we take care of those fairly easily. This is about the worrying that is experienced by people who have no assurance that they will have anything to eat or to wear the next day. It's worrying about an uncertain 
future. And how do we know that? Because verse 27 says, Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? No, this is about the things that we can't control. And Christ is saying that if it's out of your control, then trust that it is still in God's control. And whatever comes out of it, no matter how difficult that might be, no matter how painful it might be in the short run, you must trust that it is Him working for the good of His plan, and therefore for your good. For some people in the first century in occupied Judea, food and clothing were things they couldn't count on having the next day. They didn't know they would, if they would have something to eat in that tomorrow. I don't know if any of us here have ever been poor enough to be able to directly relate to that. I know that I haven't. Jesus' solution comes in verse 33. He says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness. So what's his kingdom? What's God's kingdom? It's the people of God living in the presence of God. And what's his righteousness? It's living faithfully according to God's commands. So what does... So this means then, perhaps, be a good follower of the Father's will and you will be miraculously furnished with the things that you need? Maybe. God does seem to work miraculously in those cases sometimes. But the answer might actually be a whole lot more direct and pragmatic and on the ground level than that. Matthew 6, Jesus commands those who cannot fulfill their basic needs to trust that God will provide. Compare this then with Matthew 25, verses 34 to 40. Jesus is describing the day of judgment. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When, would, when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus promises those who seek his kingdom and righteousness that their basic needs will be provided. Jesus promises those who meet the basic needs of the brothers and sisters in Christ that they will be rewarded and credited as righteous. Now this may sound crazy, but to me that sounds like God's children should not need to worry about food or clothing and basic necessities because God's children are commanded, directed, and rewarded to look after one another, especially the weakest and most vulnerable among them. In fact, Christ goes further than that in chapter 25. He goes on to say that the, a failure to show that attitude is an indication of insincerity in one's faith. Verse 41 and onwards. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fires prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. 
I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick and in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to the eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is an enormous implication for the loved one's neighbor rule. If a first century Christian with enough food to share with a brother or sister who had none, if they chose to share that meal, then by giving that brother a meal, they're doing more than just satisfying their guilt. They may be saving that brother's life, or at least saving them some hunger pains. But beyond that, they're satisfying God's command to love his neighbor, to look after the least of these, and simultaneously answering a prayer and validating that brother's faith that God will provide in his time of insufficiency. Because those who love God are the instruments of his will on this earth in such a real way that the scriptures call the church Christ's body. And the historical church particularly developed this metaphor of being the hands and feet of Christ. Feet being those parts that take the gospel to the nations, hands being those parts that do the work that needs to be done, and both of those being the parts that the Romans nailed to the cross. It comes at a cost, sometimes an ultimate cost. But you and I are the reason that God tells his children not to worry. Because he expects us to take familial ownership of his people, so much so that they trust that the worst will not come so long as there are brothers and sisters around them. That's a beautiful picture of God's plan for trust to conquer anxiety in his kingdom. It's also not as helpful as we might like it to be for 21st century middle-class Christians in a country with numerous charities and government programs to feed its hungry, shelter its homeless, to clothe them. The basic needs for life are either uh, so abundantly provided that it's hard for the church to find those to pour out that kind of charity upon. Or those who lack those basic needs are so far away, we must send out people on special missions to find the needy so that we can dispense our God-given wealth upon them, which is a fine thing to do, but not the kind of face-to-face -face kingdom living that the church is built on. Or they're so easily met, these needs, that overcoming those basic needs is just trivially dealt with. It's a small cost. And people in this country are sometimes in very desperate situations. I'm not minimizing that, but they don't die of starvation. There's a huge majority of the homeless in Australia that are um, what is called trimorbid. That means they're suffering three terrible things at the same time. They tend to be suffering from substance abuse, uh, chronic pains and illnesses, and mental illnesses, all three at the same time. And that's quite a deadly combination. Can't get off drugs because I'm suffering mentally. Can't get better mentally because I live on the street. Can't go to a shelter because I'm stuck on drugs. And if you feel your spirit speaking to the Holy Spirit on this issue, that if you're going to be God's hands in this situation, then God bless you and fortify you because it's the most heartbreaking, hope-crushing, and selfless volunteering that you can do. It's not finding a hungry person and feeding them when they are not hungry anymore. This is finding a person who is locked in the most cruel and comprehensive prison that the devil has ever devised to be completely free 
in the freest time in the, one of the freest countries in the world and miserable. And trying to break someone out of that is hard and slow and often thankless. Absolutely do it if you can. But there's no escaping the way that Christ in our passages today is saying that the kingdom, this godly community, is the answer to the anxiety of its members. It's meant to be a source of trust for them. So what is that supposed to look like here in our well-fed and, I must say, well-dressed church? Because we do worry about tomorrow. We have no shortage of food, but no shortage of things to worry about. What happens if I fail my exams? What if I never learn to do the things that I desperately want to do? What if I can't afford a house in the future? What if this is all my faith is and that moment of clarity and excitement I was really hoping for never comes? Is the future I'm hoping for what it appears to be or is it something dangerous and disappointing that's going to creep up on me? All of us live in some level of that. And we're knowing that we're going to have enough food for tomorrow at least. We know we're not going to starve to death. But here in the 21st century, the anxiety that plagues us here, plagues us like famine did for others in ancient times. What if I turn out to be a failure in my life? What if I'm a bad father, a bad provider? What if I am never able to do a job that I can respect? What if I'm not as smart as I thought I was? These are the kinds of worries and anxieties that are too abstract and too far away for us to solve easily, but they are there, and they don't go away. You can pretend that they're not there, but you've got no assurance that these things will resolve in your favor when you do run into them in the future. How do you not worry about these? How do you pursue righteousness and the kingdom in light of a fear, not that I'll not have dinner tomorrow, but that five years from now I might have wasted a huge chunk of my life and getting a degree that I don't actually uh, feel competent to do and, and I'm not smart enough to complete maybe and then I'm just older and $80,000 in student debt and just as useless at life as I started. I want to suggest two things. One of them is fundamental and conservative. The other is actually fairly radical and I just want to slide that across the table towards you and let God's spirit prompt you in your heart one way or the other. And the first thing to do is we must learn what it means to trust God. We can use those words, trust God, fairly airily as if they meant just stop trying to think about it. But what they mean is that God is the master of the unknown and anything we don't know is in his hands. There's nothing that you can do to wrongfoot God. There is nothing that the world can do to overpower him. In the book of Job, chapter 38, God speaks to Job out of the storm. It says, And the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? 
for who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. A storm is, is chaos. It's an unpredictable swirl of energies, but God speaks out of it in perfect comfort and command. Everything supernatural and mundane, everything microscopic and macrocosmic is inside his knowledge and authority. Take note of the storms that you go through in your life, the ones that you've already been through. And remember them in the future when you're going through one again. Once you come to know God through his son, you can appreciate more and more over time how he really is the one who's in control. And these things that seem like disasters at the time were trials that shape you and grow you. When we pray later on, take a moment to think of the painful episodes in your life that you've already been through. The ones that caused you the most anxiety and uncertainty about what would come next. And thank God that you know now that you can trust him to carry you through it again. That's the first thing. The second thing requires us to be a little more proactive about our own anxieties and those of people around us in the church family. I've used a lot of young adult male sort of metaphors because I'm working from a life that I know, but you can interpret the equivalent for your own life. Indeed, you have to. What are you anxious about? What is it that you do very well that others don't seem to handle very well? These are not trivial questions, and the answers aren't necessarily immediately obvious. This is a, a reflection exercise for maybe one day this week, if you're game, when you can fit it in. But find a few quiet moments, draw a line down the center of a page, and on one side, write the things that really worry you, the things that keep you up at night, or that you don't know about your future that you wish you had some illumination on. The big things, the things that you feel like you can't do anything about, or that you're worried you'll never get around to. If it's study, work, never having the money to travel, not being fit enough, not understanding something that your partner really values. What are the big things that are too big to ignore, but too hard to do anything about? What are those things that are eating up your peace in your life? Note them. Having written them down will help you as you submit them to God in prayer because they are the weak points that the enemy will attack you through. Know what causes you that anxiety. But on the other side, take note of the things that you are good at that others aren't. What are you excellent at that you enjoy that seems simple to you, but to most people is a mystery? Are you really good at a musical instrument and possibly capable of teaching it? Are you a capable fisherman? Are you good with kids? Are you one of those weird people who loves doing budgets and making spreadsheets? Do you like organizing people's schedules? Does that make you feel organized as well? Are you great at studying and writing essays that seem to drive other people completely insane? All of these things are gifts that God has given you, which you can turn into a ministry to serve your brothers and sisters in this church. And if you don't step up to offer it, it's possible that some folks will go on worrying because they don't think that anyone would ever offer that help to them. Do you know that there are creative types in this church 
who wish they knew how to do some kind of art to express something that's locked up inside them. And if someone here who knew their stuff booted up an STBC art club, then that would be attended by them and it would genuinely slice a piece of fear and anxiety off their life. Not to mention the community outreach possibilities of something like that. There's a, a whole generation of young adults now who fear that they will never move out of their parents' home, let alone buy one of their own because it has become harder for them and also because they've never really been taught how to budget their expenses before. Are you the one who is going to launch the Sunnybank Savers? I'll give you some freebies of things that I wish that I had in this church to help out with some of my minor anxieties. Don't mock me. I am being vulnerable to you here. One, I have no idea how my car works. I have only the barest knowledge of how to maintain it. And if I, I didn't really have the attention span when people were trying to teach me before, but now I'm kind of worried that one day I'll need to diagnose a problem with it or I'll miss opportunities to save money by fixing it myself. <laughs> Two, self-defense. I've never been in a fight in my life. I try not to intend to be in one. But I have a pipe dream of one day getting a black belt in some kind of self-defense and running it as a kind of a ministry out of the church. I think that would be an excellent outreach. But if we have any secret karate masters who want to get a jump on that dream for me, that would be amazing. Three, I wish that I was better at scheduling my life. Google Calendar seems clunky to me. It sends me a thousand emails that I don't need and I can't make it stop. It makes me feel like an old man. How would you even go about making a life organizing ministry? I don't know, you'd have to ask an organized person. That might be you. Now, I'm not just throwing these out here as a put of a personal wish list, although it's also a little bit of that. I'm saying that there are things that people in the church worry about that they aren't, they're not as simple as food or clothing. We don't get the option of easy solutions to things for some of the problems that we face here, but they're no less real. And just because you can't find someone in the church who needs food or clothing from you. Doesn't mean that you can't meaningfully bless their lives in a way that releases them from that kind of anxiety that Christ was talking about. You can give some service, some knowledge, some wisdom that genuinely changes how they experience their life. You can use what God has given you as a divine answer to your brother's fear or your sister's need. It may require some creativity to figure out how to use that gift best to serve. But if you don't put it out there, you will never know how God might have used you as a vessel of trust to build up your brothers and sisters. And every time that you help someone overcome some small part of their world that was uncertain and anxious before, you show them that they have what it takes to conquer the unknown things that will, without a doubt, interrupt their lives in the future. And you show them that when Jesus says to trust him and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he means it. One day, you will be standing before the king of this kingdom. And to you, the king might say, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was afraid 
and you gave me courage. I doubted that I had what it took to live righteously, and you showed me that I did. I was blind to what I could be, and you opened my eyes. I was drowning in the chaos of the world, and you taught me how to swim. And perhaps you will answer him, Lord, when did we do any of those things for you? And the king may say in reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did this for me. Let's pray. I'm going to give you a moment, as I said, to think about those places in your life where you've come through a great storm, where God's proven that he can take you through those difficult places and out the other side. Take that moment now. Father God, we lift up our hearts to you as individuals who are fully given over to you, saved by grace in the act of your son's sacrifice on the cross. And we praise you too as a body of your people, a community of those seeking your kingdom and righteousness. For those things in our lives which are beyond our control, help us to trust in your ultimate plan instead of worrying ourselves to pieces. For those things that you have gifted us in, show us how we might use those gifts to serve your kingdom. Show us how to serve your people in this church and so remove from them some of the worry of their lives. And show us how to serve the people in this community and so lead them to the source of our trust and salvation, your son, Christ Jesus. We ask this in his holy name. Amen.